When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is a presentation of Morning Drive Media. From the southernmost point of Dorne to the lands of always winter, what is west of west and the shadows in the east, this is Casterly Talk, and we are continuing our rewatch and deep dive into the themes, moments, and lessons of every episode of HBO's Game of Thrones. You just got me today. I always feel I should apologize for that. Uh, That's because, you know, Rachel Cushing's been showing up here just laying down some great insight. Andres Cabrera's showing up laying down some great insight. Lon Harris is ready to get in here, and I've confirmed today. I mean, life always can be a little crazy, but confirmed today. Michelle Boyd going to be joining us for uh, some stuff early season two on the rewatch. Uh, Rachel really wanted to be here today. Schedule uh, did not uh, make it possible. It's uh, it's tough out there as we all try to keep our uh, ducats flowing to our uh, coffers. Did that, is that a right reference? Yeah, it'll, it'll work. So you just got me breaking down episode seven of season one. And you know what? That's kind of fitting. This is a big episode. So I felt I felt I really needed someone else or many people. And we got some great calls to kind of help me through this, but I love this episode, and I have been banging the gong. Get it on. Uh, banging, banging the gong of this being like the quintessential Game of Thrones episode. Now, I started saying that early on. That's probably changed. Some bigger, better episodes, quote-unquote, have maybe uh, come our way. This is all the way back in Season 1, but without a doubt, Season 1 is just one of those kind of almost pitch-perfect seasons. I've come to appreciate season two a bit more, especially after I first saw it. Coming off of season one, season two, you know, it's a brave new world and it's expanding in front of you. You're kind of, I don't know, Miss Ned, all those kind of things. So I appreciate season one more. And I don't like to rank things uh, too much, uh, but but I, I still I still might rank season one as the best season of all. It's also easier to be uh, the best season when you're the first out of the game expectations going forward. You're going to see that with Disney's Mandalorian, Star Wars. Um, You're going to see that. Season one's great. Everyone loves it. But now expectations are in place. And I'm recording this before season two of Mandalorian airs. And I guarantee you're going to start seeing that. Well, that's not what I wanted. So that Game of Thrones, immediately beginning with season two, was, you know, having to fight its own uh, success from season one and and fight uh, the expectations of everybody. So all that to say, I still look at this episode and I still kind of think it is the quintessential Game of Thrones episode. It is kind of everything we want and expect from an episode, for better or worse, for better or worse. And that includes the, the ending, which is the big what-a-twist ending that you kind of want every episode to go that way. Episode 8, we're going to go uh, into that one, obviously, next week. And I, I think that is one that ends so just on a downbeat. 
uh, Sans in the throne room. And even, even then, you watch that and you're like, oh, well, last week, Baelish had a knife to Ned's throat. Wow, what an ending. So there's that there, too. Also, watching this episode now, uh, this week, it, it really stands out that this particular episode, it does kind of pick up the pace. I mean, it's a great episode, pacing-wise. But uh, my point being, it, every scene is almost like a one-act play. And towards the end, the pacing picks up and the scenes may become a little bit more connected, is what I was trying to say there. But I think it's a bunch of one-act plays in a way. And that was probably something that was in place before and it's in place after. But we kind of look at these type of episodes and we have those expectations of every scene taking its time. Have every scene as a beginning, middle, and end. And look, if you're writing them, every scene does. But this one, it just it's almost like you're sitting in a theater. Lights come up, scene, lights go down, scene, and you're moved by each scene, and you're and you're intrigued by each scene, shocked. Um, uh, you're, you're pulled into each scene. Each scene is truly its own kind of uh, little adventure. And it just really stands out for me. But it's interesting in calling it one of the best episodes. Look at uh, House Lannister, what we get. We got Jamie and Cersei, of course. Tywin shows up. And I think that's great. But Tyrion's not present in this episode, not at all. Which... Uh, we talked about before, like in season uh, season one, John, a couple episodes without Jon Snow, a couple of episodes without Daenerys. There's only like six or so episodes without Tyrion at all, and it's just kind of weird to think, but Tyrion missing from this episode, which, uh, you know, again, I consider the best, one of the best, quote-unquote. But I don't know if you don't have a Tyrion. Uh, Tyrion uh, is showing up in your episode. Is it is it really one of the best? I don't know. These are big questions. But anyways, because I've loved this episode so much, I love that I am here to break it down. So let's go into, I guess like I got to back up my own words is what I mean by all that. Let us go to uh, some of the uh, stats and figures that we've been uh, having fun doing here. Uh, that is the original air date was May 29, 2011. Though if you had HBO Go, a lot of HBO Go subscribers could uh, just immediately get this episode after episode six. Just kind of roll right through, binge it. Back before we really lived life like that, you know? Director is Daniel Minahan. Underrated in, 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 the, in the pantheon of, of Game of Thrones directors. His name doesn't come up much, but here he is directing some of the bigger episodes in season one. Writers Benioff and Weiss credited for this. Cinematographer Matthew Jensen. Editing Martin Nicholson. I am reading right now, thanks to a generous gift from listener Donald Long, the book Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, which is great. I'm, I'm a few... Um, you know, a few more than a few chapters in now. James Hibbert of uh, EW's book and, and back in the day, Hollywood Reporter. And it's got a lot of uh, quotes and interviews you've already read or sentiments that have already been expressed. But there's also wonderful insight. And it's a great quick read. And it goes season by season, sometimes almost episode by episode. So you can really kind of glean some um, glean some insight from the book as well, too. So just want to talk about that. I might occasionally, especially going forward, reference some stuff. It's in that book, and, and a big uh, big plug for that book, quite frankly. Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, going uh, really good, enjoying it a lot. Let's dive into some of the themes and lessons here for Episode 7, You Win or You Die. Um, I, uh, interesting uh, here, uh, Hitfix is Alan Seppenwall. I was looking at some of the notes of uh, critical responses uh, back in the day. Alan Seppenwall called it a terrific episode, and commented how it turned, the, and I'm quoting him here, it turned the spotlight on the characters who are villains in Ned Stark's version of the story. And I love, this is a lot of Ned. This is, this is the end of his arc, so to speak. This is the last time Ned is roaming around free. And this is his version of the story. It's his outlook. This is, he's 
many of the big scenes here in this episode and and and, and episode six and, and beyond. But it, this is with all the chaos going around, you're seeing a lot of it through Ned's eyes. Cersei, Renly, the plot, Baelish, Robert's death. It's all through Ned's eyes, and it's truly his version of the story. And we get to learn a lot of things through him. And it's a great observation and is, uh, you know, every villain is a hero in his own story. You hear those kind of things that are all kind of true, good writing tips and tricks. But the hero, who probably doesn't consider himself the hero, but the hero kind of being the hero in his own story, it's, that's, that's a version we don't hear a lot too. And I think this episode, when you dig in, that's that's not necessarily a theme. It's just the way it's presented. But you can see a lot of this through um, Robert's, uh, excuse me, Ned's eyes, including Robert's death here. Just kind of run through just some themes that popped up. And and some of them go through each, uh, they connect in each scene, in each episode. And this episode just has so much, so much good stuff here. One of the overall things, especially where it ends, but the world rewards the ruthless. And man, does that suck. Man, does that suck. We have got our introduction to Tywin. We're definitely going to talk about that. Tywin's one of my favorite characters, and this is a legendary scene, a legendary introduction. Uh, you know, butchering up the stag, uh, and for real, all that kind of stuff. Everyone knows that uh, there. But just, you got Tywin. And, and Andres Cabrera and I here at Castle Soccer, big Tywin fans. And we what we mean by that is there's lessons to learn from Tywin, but he's... He's brutal and he's wrong and he gets what he gets what's coming. But for this world, there's something about him. I just can't turn away from a lot of things Tywin's saying. You know, and I like I like the old grumpy mean man in Game of Thrones. Uh, I always get teased for that. Uh Grace always teased me for that. We're 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 doing a kind of our own rewatch a little bit ahead of this. We're in season two watching some Stannis stuff. And you know, she 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 questions as a lot of people do, and, and a lot of people should question my love of Stannis. I just there's reasons, there's actual reasons. Same with my love of Tywin. I don't think he's a good guy. I don't think he's good. I don't think he's a hero in his own story. But I, every point he makes, there's a part of me that goes, yeah, yeah, yeah not wrong. And um, in watching this scene right now, watching this episode again, because it's from a lot a lot of it from Ned's point of view. Ned is Ned is just Ned is honorable. Ned, um, Ned's holding the line, and that's not going to get him anywhere. And we know that this show's about that. We know. We've already learned by this point. But in season one, you're still hoping. And I'm always talking about season one from a point of view of someone who hadn't read the books yet. And some of you watching probably still never read the books. I picked up the books. I'd already owned them by now. I was like, all right, after, after, after episode one, I was like, yeah, let's get the books. But we'll wait after the season. I, didn't, I just didn't want to be spoiled. Even, you've, even though you've learned this lesson that the world rewards the ruthless, I think by, by episode seven here, I'm still, I mean, up to the very last second with Ned, I'm like, hey, the, the Calvary's coming in to save his day. Uh, it's it's going to be okay. We're, we're going to be fine. Heroes win. The good people win, Right. But time and time again, this episode just kind of keeps trying to drive the point home to Ned. Ned, you're not going to win if you don't play the game. You're not going to win if you don't not compromise your morals, but really examine your choices. Examine your morals. Examine what you're holding to. Otherwise, the ruthless will win. And at the end of this episode, the, one of the greatest endings of all the Game of Thrones, without a doubt. Again, that's why I love this episode. Um, Baelish with the knife to his throat. I did tell you not to, I did warn, what, what, I actually wrote down the line, because I think it's one of those misquoted lines. Uh, I did warn you not to trust me. 
I think it's, 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 uh, I, I hear different versions, especially even for myself about that line. So we all get to that point and it's like, Ned, you've been told the whole time. You got to be, you got to see what's actually there. We're going to get a good call about that here in a second here. Also like uh, this, uh, this theme is, um, and a lot of it ties in episode six, but the Daenerys stuff here, coupled with the Cersei stuff, that Cersei Ned scene is spectacular, but this, this idea as a, it's a theme here. We're, we're, we're looking for themes and lessons. So this may be, maybe this is in the middle of those two, but it's this idea of no one in this world and maybe into other worlds too, like ours, uh, see women as a, as, as a power and, and a threat, right? It, it is, this is not the way it is. But here's Cersei. I love her line. We talk about always finding little moments of insight and sympathy and understanding for Cersei. And I go back to this moment and I tie it to the end of season six in that wine sip heard around the world as the sept is destroyed and Cersei takes a sip of, yeah, I won this round. I go back to this scene. Now she says, I think it's right to focus on one of uh, the key lines in all of Game of Thrones. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. There is no middle ground. We're going to talk about that again as that line is foreshadowing. But I love when Ned, trying to be honorable Ned, good old Ned, look, you got to pack up your kids, pack up as many Lannister men as you want, and get out of here because Robert's wrath will follow you. And Cersei shoots back, what about my wrath, Lord Stark? He's already, he's even addressed Cersei being hit by Robert. He witnessed it, and he sees it, and he does kind of say it to her. Uh, you know, has is, is he done this before? Clearly he has. And Ned is already facing truths about his buddy. But she just drives it home. Just drives a lot of points home about your buddy. My brother is better than him. Oh, you mean you love her? And the conversation goes that way. So it can get lost of what Cersei is trying to say here. Am I not a threat? Do, do you just simply just cast me aside because I am a woman? Is that the way it is? I mean, Cersei knows the answer. And she's out to prove that. What about my wrath, Lord Stark? It is one of my favorite lines about Game of Thrones because you also tie it into this episode with Daenerys. She talks to Jorah about Viserys going back and and, and, and wasn't worthy. Um, she sits there with uh, Khal Drogo, uh, braiding his hair. It's a real sweet moment, right? But talking about that iron chair she wants. What about her place on the throne? What about her place in what is hers? And what is her family's? Uh, so that comes up again too, and it just—it's it, all through the series. And I think Daenerys and Cersei continue to run up against that wall, and continue, continue to be told, "Oh, you are not a power. Uh, you are not a threat. Uh, we don't care about your wrath." And they continue after having to fight against it, to where they both make some understandable choices. That might lead to their own destructions. And that's, that's, that's a bigger conversation when we get to season eight. But I think a lot of, I go back to this episode and I see a lot of them realizing, we're going to talk about some of the stuff with Daenerys, but like when she is, uh, you know, the attempt on her life, the poisoning, I think you can highlight on, Hey, yeah, that motivates Cal Drogo to be like, yeah, okay. Yeah. You, I'll, I'll cross the, I'll cross the sea. I'll give you, I'll give you what you want. But uh, it's it's Daenerys kind of going, 
when George telling her stuff, uh, you know, Robert will hunt you to the end of the earth, so to speak, the end of the world. Just her realizing no one wants me to have a place in this world. No one wants me to have a place, even though I feel I might have a right to. And why can't I have a place in this world? I can see where it really begins. We talked a lot in episode six, a golden crown, the willingness to to have her brother killed. And, and, and maybe it's one of those first steps onto a slippery slope for Daenerys. I never want that to sound, including with Cersei. I'm not rooting for Cersei, right? I'm not rooting. I get it. I get it. She's bad. She's bad. She does bad things. I don't think everything she does is justified. But at the end of the day, I think maybe some of it, if not all of it, comes from a place that she feels justified in. I don't know if she's wrong. So, yeah, complicated stuff going forward, but a lot of it springs out of here. What about my wrath, Lord Stark? Love that line. Uh, again, when she's talking about, uh, you know, I, I kind of love that, that um, Ned doesn't fully understand her. Um, perhaps doesn't fully understand women. I mean, the way... The way he raises uh, Sansa and, and Arya is good. It's good. He's a good father. But later on, Sansa and Arya have that conversation when they're back in Winterfell of just, you know, father didn't fully prepare us. And he says, you know, it's a comic, uh, comical moment early on about war is easier than raising daughters, you know. You know, it is what it is with Ned. But the fact that when he shoots back to Cersei, like, oh, you've hated, you've hated Robert from the beginning. She's like, no, I worshipped him. Everyone in the Seven Kingdoms wanted him, and I was going to be married to him, all strong and black-bearded. I love that Cersei moment, describing, you know, when he crawled into bed, stinking of alcohol, and did what, did what he did, what little he could, whispering Leona's name. I love that it got, you shoot back to Ned, and it's just like, oh, oh, gosh. Yeah, I got that wrong. It's important stuff. It's important stuff. All tying into that line, what about my wrath, Lord Stark? Do we have? I have the Not Today T-shirt on. Should we have? I need. I need that T-shirt. Is that one out there? Because I have. I have the Power is Power T-shirt. I, I have a framed uh, uh, Nan Larson art piece of of Cersei and Daenerys hanging in my office here uh, that I love. Uh, I just I'm fascinated by their tales. I'm fascinated by them. The lessons that should be learned from them uh, for us, not them, about how how they're treated. So much stuff. Mercy is a theme here, specifically with. Um, Ned and I want to bring in our uh, good friend, our uh, regular caller, Eric Monroe. He's got a call here about Ned's mercy, Ned bedside for Robert's final moment. So, uh, Eric, take it away. Hey, Ken and Cashley Talk. So, episode seven, you win or you die. I really like the scene between uh, Robert and Ned. Uh, Robert's final scene before he dies. You know, I like when he how he tells Ned, you know, please help my son. He's going to need you. But Ned, of course, at this point knows the truth that Joffrey is, in fact, not Robert's biological son. And I'm very happy that Ned didn't tell him that because I think it would have been kind of cruel to tell someone on their deathbed, hey, guess what? You know your children? They're not your children. But it does raise a question to me. If Ned, let's say, had gone along with things, accepted Joffrey as the king, do you think Ned maybe could have helped Team Joffrey just a little bit, given the way Ned was, or do you think Joffrey was absolutely just irredeemable? All right. Do I think Joffrey was irredeemable? Yes. There's some moments. There's some moments in season one where you see where it comes from. You see maybe he had, uh, he didn't have a chance. He didn't have a chance. Uh, but I, I got to tell you, um, 
I love this. I love this out here. Ned's mercy, and 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 there's some stuff in the in the uh, you know after the episode stuff. If you stick around on on HBO, Benioff and Weiss address the idea of this is a rare lie for Ned. Let's start the conversation there. It's a rare lie for Ned. He's he's not lying to Robert. He's keeping that information, but his letter is a lie, right? His letter is a is at least a manipulation of the truth, and he doesn't tell Robert. Oh, I'm not going to put your actually words down. But he doesn't tell Robert the truth. And yeah, there's some mercy there. Uh, I think Benioff and Weiss, forget, uh, forget which one of them said it in uh, the, after the episode stuff. It's just like, it, it would be masochistic to to tell your, your buddy in his final moments, hey, uh, let me kind of destroy your world. I mean, what's Robert going to do? I mean, you, you know, I don't know. Ned, I, 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 there's a case for Ned saying, look, I know you're about to die, but I got to tell you something. Because maybe you can help us going forward. But as we see, Cersei's not really concerned about the king's words, right? Uh, so uh, to Eric's point of just a, a Game of Thrones what if, this is one of the, we have a few what ifs here. Alden's got a great what if coming up here uh, in a phone call. Um, the the what if of, of, yeah, what if Ned goes, all right, yeah, yeah, okay. I'll do what Baelish tells me to do later on, right? All right, I'll suck it up. We'll make some peace. I'll, I'll be the hand. I'll be the hand of the king. Maybe I can help this kid. Maybe I can help the realm. I, I think it's almost futile. It just well, not because of what we know of, of what becomes of Joffrey, but he's lost. I think. I think. I think he's lost, and and there's the truth he can't escape. That I, I do believe they would have tried to kill him, and at some point, you know, it might. It just might have been successful. Ned might have been up against too much there, but it's a great thought. And I, you can you can see, you know, just there's no way Cersei would let it. There's no way. Even if it was all honest, if it, even if it was true on Ned's part of, you know what? Enough of this. I will try to help for the realm. For the realm. Joffrey, come on. I'll be your hand. Cersei, I just, there's no way she accepts it. There's just no way. But it's a great thought. And uh, Eric, Eric, great call on uh, yeah, Ned's mercy in that scene. And uh, a, a good time to use it there. We've got this uh, concept here, a theme and a lesson here. Uh, for the realm. This obviously comes up a lot in Game of Thrones. And what is best for the people? So this ties into the great scene here with Renly, Geth and Anthony, uh, great as Renly, uh, and, and Ned having that final kind of conversation. Renly just kind of like making his play. Like, please, follow me. I'd be the king, man. Come on. Come on. And there's some stuff in there. And then also we got the Night's Watch vow scene here and you know this is where we get uh, to the uh, severed arm and and the the whites being kind of revealed to be 100 percent true we already know it but now that some of our characters are really seeing it gonna happen so you can go to that vow scene with john and sam taking their vows at the heart tree and focus on that but we're, we're trying to focus on those themes and the lessons here and i want to talk a little bit about uh, the realm uh, and and for the people and what's best for the people and to do that. Uh, Alden Diaz is a, is a great call here. It's about episode six or seven, but uh, those those episodes really do work well together. They pair together well. So why feel uh, Alden's call is great for right now. Hey Ken, it's Alden here with a question about Ned that kind of pertains to this entire group of episodes here in the middle of the season. So it can sort of fit uh, numerous instances where we see the different options that he has aligning with Baelish. Obviously, is the choice that truly costs him in the end. And also, you know, assuming that uh, there would not be wild cards like Joffrey involved in his ultimate sentencing. But we, you know, we flash back sort of 
to moments like this when we think about the entire you know spectrum of the show. He aligns himself with Baelish. He's got the you know the powers of the hand of the king back. He decides to send uh, Beric Dondarrion to get the to get the mountain. He calls Tywin for a trial. So he's making really bold moves that are really dangerous. And I'm curious, what do you think in a what if type way? Ned should have done in this situation would fleeing back to Winterfell have been the wiser choice or would it have just brought war to Winterfell I'm thinking instead of siding with Baelish you side with Varys let me know this is a great call and a great thought Alden I I I really think the answer is Varys to explain what is best for the people Renly says two great he says a lot of great things in that scene with, with Ned he tells Ned a truth. Again, another moment. Another moment to the world rewards the ruthless and Ned, can't you see it? He just says quite simply and plainly and directly about Cersei to Ned. She won't care. Nothing about the truth. Nothing you can put in a letter. Nothing you can say. She won't care. And look what happens. She does not care. Ned couldn't see that. Ned's... It's always hard to call Ned wrong. I do this, you know, I don't have any children, but like if you're sitting down with kids and you're trying to teach them the ways of the world, would you rather look at Ned Stark and and, and follow him, an honorable path, a just path, a good man, a good person path? Would you you rather want that or would would you rather Baelish, Cersei, Joffrey? Like, who's your role models, right? Jon Snow, we could say Daenerys, and there's a lot, I think there's a lot still uh, of, of of a great role model to be found. Daenerys, I think, again, that's part of the journey. What happens to her is is does not negate anything that you might have uh, learned or been inspired by from her earlier. But going to this moment here, going to Renly, going to Alden's call, this great what if and what should he have done, and you're right, there's a wild card thing. I think, you know, I don't, I don't think Cersei would have had his head cut off. I think she knows in the back of her head she needs him alive. She knows that's a mistake. She understands season two deals with that. Joffrey's a wild card. Wild card, bitches. Yeah, that's Joffrey. Um, we've all, we've talked here before on Casterly Talk of the what if of what if what if Ned had gone to the wall? What would have happened? Uh, how that would have changed things? Uh, and I love the what ifs because they're the, they're truly these butterfly effects. But tying this, tying what Renly says here, uh, when he's Ned's giving him the honor speech, right? It might suck. But Stannis, Stannis is the rightful king. I'm a Stannis fan, and that, that drives my love of Stannis. Like, hey, you might not like him, but he has a claim to it. Uh, that's one of the reasons I started to love Stannis. Prodigal son's brother syndrome is what I call it. But here's Renly just going, excuse me. Excuse me, Ned. It's a little self-righteous. Paraphrasing here, but it's a little self-righteous for you to hold to the line. Hold to the secession. When you helped my brother rebel and topple a dynasty and take the throne, he had no claim to it. But you all then believed it was what was best for the people. And I think Ned in that moment, and Sean Bean plays it of kind of this like, you might be right, but here's where we are now, and I'm not backing down, and I'm too far down the path, and he has his reasons. I don't think Ned, it's a colossal failure, obviously, but I I, I still look at him and go, I understand, and I think he's doing what's right. What's right. But I think at the end of the day, this idea that Alden's putting out there about, do you side with Baelish, which he ends up doing, and it costs him greatly, 
Or do you follow Varys? And I'm not just saying in a literal follow any plan Varys had, because part of Varys's plan was a Targaryen restoration with Illyrio and everything there, right? But the conversations they have later on in the Black Cells, and they'd been there before, but of whose side are you on, Varys? The realm. Someone has to be. And that's a little bit later. And Ned hears that a little more directly after. But if he had had the approach here and just stuck with Varys, someone, you know, it's hard to trust Varys. And that's, that's, that's the delicious, delicious, delicious kind of intriguing layer to Varys. He's hard to trust. Ned chooses Baelish, but Varys is the one that comes from this point of For the Realm. And though this episode's title, You Win or You Die, gets applied to the show and, the, and this Game of Thrones, more on that in a bit here, but I, I really think this show is about what these high lords and ladies are doing to either help, protect, or hurt the small folk, hurt the people. That line Jorah has with Daenerys about the, 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 they don't care. The, the, the small folk don't care about uh, the high lords and their Game of Thrones. They, they pray for a long summer. You know, that, that whole sequence there. What is right for the realm? And Varys carries that to the very bitter end. And he is not wrong. He's not wrong. And then even this kind of, follow me here, this even kind of connects for me to this idea of Bran ending up the king. And how he is the only one who kind of doesn't really want the power. So everyone else is affected, corrupted in their own way, if you will, by power or ruling. John walks away knowing that maybe that would have happened. We'll get to that in season eight. We'll get to that along the way. I think Varys would have approved of Bran as the king because he he keeps saying it's got to be for the realm. And so to hear that here, to hear that, to hear this coupled with the Night's Watch vow, we all love the Night's Watch vow, right? I mean, I, I have the Night's Watch hat, so maybe you don't. But, you know, they're protectors of the realm. Uh, sword, uh, their swords and the shields in the darkness, right? They're pre- for the realm. And John and Sam are saying these words, and they're hugging and high-fiving, and then Ghost comes out with the arm, and you go that direction. But as they're giving the vows for the realm, Ghost emerges with the real threat. And in that, John learns that. His stand against his own people, his own organization, his stand essentially against the traditions of the Seven Kingdoms, at the end of Season 5, the wildling, the wildlings aren't a wildlings. They're free folk born on the wrong side, and we need them. It's what's best for the realm. John comes to learn that. Uh, Ned doesn't learn it, doesn't have time to learn it. So big what if, Alden. I don't know if I answered it super directly, but Varys. Varys. It's weird to say, but he has the right idea. Game of Thrones might be about what those high lords and ladies are doing to the small folk. Which is why Varys saying, everything we have to do has to be for the better of the realm. Now that does mean Varys is on board for some bad things. I don't want to go down a list and justify each one, yes or no. Going to the core, going to one of the themes here. The world rewards the ruthless. So maybe if you always aim for the good of the people, what's best for the people? 
I think Renly would have been a great king. I think Ned has some doubt, and that's why in this moment, yeah, all right, you maybe you're right. Maybe Stannis isn't the best, but I don't think you're the best either. Baelish is, you know, and again, you don't trust Baelish, but Baelish is saying, look, 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 you just, just, just calm this all down. Be the hand. Side with Cersei. Side with George. Say it's okay. Stand down. Release, release Jamie. All those kind of things. If Joffrey's a problem, we'll deal with that later. I don't think Baelish thought Ned was going to agree to that at all, but it's one of those moments of I don't think Ned was wrong. Or excuse me, Baelish was, was wrong, that theory, that plan, but it's a lie for Baelish, I think. But it might have been something a little bit more true from Varys. Anyways, all the long way around to answer that question there. Great call, Alden. We also got another call here from our good pal Donald Long uh, regarding Tywin Lannister. I think one of the other themes in this episode is the bonds of family. So take it away, Donald. It's going to play. There it is. Hey, Ken and Cash, we talked. Just wanted to call in this week and talk about one of the best character interjecting scenes we ever get in the show. But Charles Dance as a great Tywin Lannister and him skinning a deer in the scene, which is a real deer also. But also it kind of foreshadows that Robert's death and events surrounding it and who plays a part in it with Cersei and Lancel. We find out later on how they play. But also the speech he has with Jamie during the scene what, about family and about the last name Lannister. And every, how everything he does and will do and the only thing he cares about the most in this world while he's living, how the, he, that last name living on. If you want, look back on it, it's kind of funny that he wants that last name to live on, but he the Lannisters also play a part in wiping out or almost completely wiping out family names in Westeros history. Thanks. All right, Donald, uh, great call. Sorry for the uh, tech issues there. Uh, you know, you click on play when it doesn't play uh, and you record and live the tape. That's what happens. Great call, Donald. This Tywin scene is is an all-timer. Uh, Charles Dance is an all-timer. And uh, I just love everything about this scene. But the idea of family... And yeah, that's how important family is to Tywin. He, he knows in this land to survive. Everything, this is one of those things where I think everything Tywin is saying is true. I'm not saying he's worthy of being rooted for here uh, and being cheered for, but he, he's not wrong in this world. And yeah, he's destroying family lines left and right because he believes that's the way to do it. And uh, that's his reputation. And that's what he does. But then what, what happens here? Of all the Lannisters roaming around, including Lancel, including Kevin Lannister, they're all gone. Tyrion remains. I love that irony, too, there. Uh, uh, you know, uh, would, Tywin, would Tywin be okay with that? A new, a new redefined House Lannister with, with Tyrion be the only survivor? I don't know. I don't know. It's probably not what he envisions here. But family bonds, man. Family bonds are uh, important. And this also, John's still got some bonds. He's got to lose some of those bonds, right? We know Arya does. Later on, but I think I think Arya go, uh, goes on that journey to strengthen her family bonds. Uh, that whole no one stuff, you know that little that little arc. I like that uh, in this episode, which begins with the the bonds of family and the importance of family, the importance of that connection. Uh, that John is also struggling with his uncle being gone, and he puts that a little bit before his night watch duties. Uh, he, he's motivated. It's, it's my uncle. My uncle's gone. I want to find my uncle. And, you know, I'm not saying that's wrong, but it just family, these houses, it keeps coming up again. John has to lose that a little bit to grow and grow forward. Uh, Tywin holds on to it and it destroys him. Just an interesting observation. 
But also, it's hard for you know. I love digging into the themes, but every time I watch that Tywin scene at the top, I just I just take in the scene. It's so good. It's so good. Again, another reason this is one of the best episodes. All right, uh, I got to talk about this scene, the sex position scene. By the way, that came from journalist Miles McNutt, who described it at the in reviewing that episode as sex position, and that is what it is. And look, this one, there's been there was ones before. We talked about it. I think uh, I think it was Brian Cogman that said, look, you know, uh, men talk where they're happy is that line early on in, in season one. So, yeah, there's a lot of sex scenes uh, where uh, men are talking while they're happy. Baelish isn't directly involved in this, but he's happy in this moment, not necessarily directly because of uh, the sex uh, that he is uh, coaching or, or <laughs> organizing right there. Um, I just, um, you know, I... I all that this is this all that to say. Here's what I'm going to say about the scene. It's a bit over the top. I do think this is this is a, a slightly slightly over the top scene. Even now, looking back, I do think uh, you know they they toned they toned a lot of this down later on. Uh, um, uh, it just it, it, it I think too a lot of uh, a lot of the actors you know you, you know decided to uh, yeah maybe this isn't. Maybe maybe we need you to tone it down, uh, Game of Thrones producers. And and, and reading that book, uh, A Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, there there is some stuff. Uh, even uh, Chris Van Houten uh, talking about, uh, you know, hey, I'm fine doing a nude scene with uh, Melisandre. I get it. Uh, I got no problem with that. But uh, after a while, and it's a weapon, uh, you know, um, uh, Chris Van Houten describes uh, not just nudity, but sexuality and sex as a weapon for Melisandre, but she says in the, in the book, she goes, oh, but I did notice uh, Melisandre kept using that weapon a lot there. So interesting to see. Uh, yeah, going back to the scene. So I, I do think this is somewhat of an overtop, over-the-top scene, even for Game of Thrones, looking back. Uh, and it's definitely one of those scenes you, you know, uh, you don't want to, uh, you don't want to, uh, <laughs> you don't want to necessarily uh, have on, on an airplane, if you're watching, uh, you know, uh, I, 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 I don't think I had this scene on. There's another game. I was watching a Game of Thrones episode on a flight, just kind of, oh, I've got a flight to New York. I'm going to watch a couple episodes. And I suddenly became very hyper aware that one of those classic Game of Thrones sex scenes was on. And I'm like, oh, who on the who on the plane is watching me? Uh, why? And this is one of those scenes you don't necessarily want to sit down with your parents to watch, right? Uh, shout out to Esme Bianco and uh, Soraya Knight, uh, or is it it's more Sir Sahara Knight, excuse me, uh, who... Um, is uh, in the scene with Roz as uh, um, uh, Armeka, and she's in a lot of the episodes, uh, right? In season one and season two, um, she uh, she is uh, um, she. Uh, I'm looking at her IMDb page. I did not know that. Um, <laughs> uh, she uh, she and Roz uh, Esme Bianco just uh, you know that's a very vulnerable position for actors to be in, particularly. Uh, female actors, it's, uh, it was supposed to be closed set, as Bianca's got a little story in the book, too, how it wasn't as close as she was told, and she had to kind of stand up for that. And uh, uh, But Aiden Gillen was uh, great in the scene, and they talk about it, too, just as an actor. He was uh, great, generous, and protective as well. So this this is a famous scene, and, and why we should break it down, why we should look at it. And I'm trying to look past uh, the sex of the scene. And it, it's definitely hard, as I said, it's over the top. But if you really look close... The theme that comes out of this for me is is and Baelish says it. He's you know he's almost the Rick Ollier of uh, Star Wars exposition and the prequel uh, trilogies, particularly Phantom Menace. Of 
uh, Beaumont Kid and Rise of Skywalker. Just a lot of characters uh, get uh, exposition dialogue. Bran early on gets a lot of exposition dialogue, and it's and it's hard to deal with. It's it's clunky. It can be clunky, and so I think they do a good job disguise, disguising it to get a lot about Baelish and a lot about the world. So the theme for me, and Baelish states it pretty clearly, is the art of knowing how to fight your way by knowing by knowing who you are, and that's the that's the big speech uh, from Baelish and what what he gets to. And he says, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to screw him. We'll, we'll censor this a little bit. Uh, if you look past everything, you can really see how Baelish does what he does. And this factors into the Ned scene a little bit later on when, when he gets Ned to just finally take the bait. I think that scene is even more powerful to me when you go back to this exposition scene and look past all the things that make you giggle or, un- or uncomfortable and you see what he's describing when he's really leaning in and convincing, no, you be the woman, you be the man, and you as uh, as my sex worker here at my brothel are going to convince this man, even though he's given you money, he knows what's happening. He's entered this brothel, entered this establishment, knowing it's a transaction, but you during this are going to convince him it's real. He's always known it, and you're giving him all the proof he needs. Take what Baelish is saying there and apply it to what's going on with him and Ned later on with the whole thing when he's got the dagger and, you know, the gold cloaks and the man who pays them and all the stuff. I'm telling you, man, he's screwing Ned right there. Ned knows what's going on. He knows, and he he does draw upon, hey, you told Catelyn that you'd help her. I need that help. I'm calling upon that right now. Baelish has already told him. Not trusting me was the wisest thing you've done since you've climbed down off that horse or whatever the exact line is. Ned knows. He's entered this arrangement. Money is almost legitimately exchanging hands. Baelish does talk about, eh, my price wouldn't be that bad to help you. Gold cloaks, we can buy them. It is almost a, 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 a political brothel that Ned has walked into. What is Baelish doing? He is convincing Ned... Yeah, absolutely. You're right. You've always known you're right. I'm just giving you the proof you need. I'm telling you all the things you need to hear. And your sense of this isn't real is slipping away slowly because you're hearing what you need to hear. I'm telling you what you don't want to do. Side, uh, not side with Cersei, but calm down a bit. Make some peace. I love the line about, you know, we always make peace with our enemies. That's why it's called peace. You only make peace with your enemies. Like, come on, man. Ned, go that way. Oh, you don't want that way. That's right. You don't want to go that way. You want to go this way. And you know what? You're right. You're right. I'm going to make you believe that this is the moment you needed to do what you got to do. It absolutely connects. Take away the outlandish nature of that sex position scene. Take away all the think pieces about it. And they're fun to read and fun to watch. But watch what's going on in the scene and that theme and how it is Baelish just explaining what he does and what he keeps doing. There's also a great line we'll talk about. Well, actually, let's talk about it now. I love uh, highlighting lines. But in this, uh, it's, it's, it's a foreshadow. We love looking at an important foreshadow and things with more meaning now as the whole series is complete. But Baelish saying, uh, you know, because Roz says, hey, why don't you join? This is, this is not even, a, even this line isn't a throwaway. 
hey, you know, come on, this is pretty hot. Why don't you join? Baelish was like, nope, saving myself for another woman. Roz says, eh, what, you don't, what she doesn't know won't hurt her, right? What does Baelish say back? What we don't know is what usually gets us killed. What he doesn't know or fails to factor in about Arya and Sansa later on gets him killed. That's an important line. This is a, don't watch this scene on an airplane, or maybe maybe if you have the window seat, no one can see. Maybe, you know, well, someone's probably going to see him. Or watch it. I don't care. I think it's a great scene. I think it's a great scene for not the ways uh, that the scene would be considered a great scene just on the surface. All right? Uh, there's some stuff going on there. So let us uh, transition out of the big themes into uh, the uh, important foreshadowing uh, moments, some of our favorite moments and lines. Um, thir- uh, Cersei's thesis statement line, when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or die, there is no middle ground. And I, I always want to add that in. There is no middle ground. Uh, get gets cut off. I always talk about, I love the Game of Thrones slot machines. Anytime I'm in Vegas, the newer, older ones, but they're, 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 uh, they're fun to play. They're fun to win money and then fun to lose it all. Uh, but when you cash out and often it's, you know, with 25 cents left in your, uh, your till there, Cersei pops up and says, when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. And then, the, then it stops there. So that becomes a line. That's how the line is remembered. But there is that, there is a beat, but just, there is no middle ground. I think all of that, all of that line just has more meaning now, and and it's foreshadowing as well. But everyone in pursuit of that throne, everyone in pursuit of that throne, dies. Everyone circling that throne dies. I I, I would put Ned in there too. I don't. He clearly doesn't want the throne. You know. Jon Snow walks away. He never wanted it. Sansa never wanted that throne. Arya never wanted that throne. Bran gets it. Well, the throne isn't really there. He saw that this was the path, but I would argue that he doesn't really want it. He just knows it's his. A different conversation to have about Bran and his visions. But speaking generally, but also specifically, when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. There is no middle ground. Season 1, Episode 7. Cersei was telling all of us, it's not going to stop. It's not going to stop. Viserys might have been the first big death. It's not going to stop. I love that. Looking back now. Um, Osha. Uh, there's a great little moment there. Osha measuring up Theon. Um it's, it's a great insight. You know, you get a lot of Theon incitement. You get a lot of mention of the Iron Islands and all that kind of stuff. But when uh, she's kind of looking back at him and just, you know, Theon Theon has his moments. Episode six, he's, he's got some moments, man, saving Bran and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you're rooting for him. Come on, Starks, be nice to Theon. And then Theon has a scene like this. And you're like, oh, God, Theon. Uh, Osha kind of taken, uh, you know, when he, especially particularly when he, like, leans down kind of grabs her inappropriately and uh, is like, you want to get out of these chains? You, you see her kind of take a note like, okay, I see how I can play this guy. And it does work out uh, in season two. Interesting moment there. Um, I um, also like in that scene there, it's one of my favorite lines. Uh, it's chilling. Osha has, uh, Osha has some great chilling lines in, in season one. Tell your brother he's marching the, or, you know, tell Robbie's marching the wrong way uh, to to uh, Maester Lewin. Right? There's a couple times she says that kind of stuff, uh, talking to Maester Lewin, but uh, about um, the things in the north, 
uh, when Major Lewin's like, oh, you mean like shadow cats and owls? No. No. Uh, when she comes down to the line, they wasn't gone, old man. They were sleeping, and they ain't sleeping no more. Ah, oh, even watch, I watched it even before I recorded this, watched it again, and it's just like, that line, man, just chills. Nerd chills all about. Because now, especially now that we know what's coming. Uh, we got to Sam. Uh, I love the little kind of foreshadowing, things with more meaning, that I definitely did not pay attention to in the middle of watching season one. Uh, and, and definitely probably didn't know to pay attention to it until the end of season two. But when uh, Benjamin's horse emerges from the forest there and uh, Sam's like, oh, oh, great. Oh, riders, we get to go blow the horn. And you hear in the background, one for rangers, two for wildlings, three. And he's just cut off. What's the three? What's the third horn for? Oh, we'll find out. There's a lot about Daenerys in this episode. Uh, I'm not touching upon uh, on a, a ton of it, I know. There's some great stuff. The attempted poisoning scene is powerful. It's powerful as a Jorah fan. This is a moment. He gets his pardon. He gets to go home if he wants. Uh, he says it. He says it early on. He dreams of home in this uh, moments before the, the assassination attempt. He's talking about, we'll get to go home. Um, he gets it. He gets it here and he makes a decision. Uh, he's already made the decision that would be his undoing a, a little bit, particularly with Danny later on. And, and, and he has to work to recover from that, of course. Um, but here, this is the moment where he sides with Danny. This to me is the, the official Jorah's on board. He's, I think he's pretty much, I think he's 90%. This is the final push. He signs the contract to be with Danny here forever here. Um, but during this, there's a lot in there. I love the Jorah and Danny discussing Aegon's conquest. Because, especially if you're looking back at the, if, you, if you're just rewatching this at the end of season one and the rest of the story has it unfolded in front of you and you go back and you, this is Jorah talking about, I don't know if I believe in dragons. Daenerys asks him, do you, do you believe in dragons? Because uh, she is talking about Aegon's conquest and she brings up the, you know, because Jorah's saying important stuff about, well, Aegon didn't have a right to the six kingdoms that he took or the seven that he wanted, right? He didn't have a right to them. But he took him, but he could, because he could. And maybe that theme of the world world uh, rewards the ruthless. Aegon ends up having a nice rule after that, but eh, pretty ruthless on the road there. We're not we're not hearing that. Danny's not really even hearing that. She's like, yeah, but he he, has, he also had dragons, right? Uh, and and you could take that and start focusing on the dragons because of what happens in just a few episodes. But I love watching this now. I love watching the scene of George is basically basically saying. She, she mentions Viserys and kind of his rightful place over there, and Jorah laughs and says, "Look, basically telling Danny, you don't have you don't have a claim over there. Viserys didn't have a claim over there. I, I get I get the paper, I get the paperwork that says you do, but Aegon didn't have it. He conquered, he conquered because he could. And and, and flash to Dario saying later on, uh, in what end of season season six, you're a conqueror, Daenerys Stormborn." I'm not here to try to say it was there all along. I, I'm not. I, I, I'm sure people get exhausted me saying that. But it was there all along. But going to the the stuff I was saying earlier about Cersei and, and, and people not seeing her as a threat and people not... And a threat to me doesn't, doesn't mean... I don't just mean from... Cersei says it as, you know, my wrath. But part of that wrath is just... Robert's dead, you know, why couldn't I be queen? You know, there's that kind of conversation going on. And when I when I say it was there all along with Danny, you saw you see where it's going, 
But again, the lessons are it didn't have to go that way if just others in this world looked at her differently and treated her differently. And she didn't have to always fight. I think Viserys is the first big slip on that morality slope for Danny. But I would hope she would do that every time. And she does. It just gets worse and worse, I think. And part of it is this scene. When, when, when she realizes kind of what's happening, when, when Jorah's coming in and saying, oh, you know, I have a thirst, pour me one. You know what, wine, wine cellar, you have it. Daenerys gets it. She sees it. And then coupled that with Jorah saying, Robert's going to hunt you to the ends of the earth. There, there's a great sigh from Amelia Clark. And he's like, look, it doesn't matter if you go to the shadows in a shy. Like, and Daenerys is like, this is what she's going to face all along. Everyone. No one's just going to welcome her. A woman of power in this world with open arms. A woman with the lineage with open arms. She's going to have to take it. Just like Aegon. And this moment really, really, it's that, it, you know, Viserys was feeding her lies all along, but now she realizes, hey, it wasn't Viserys. It's me. I see now it's me. In my own story, I see it's me. But now no one's going to let me have it. This great moment, we're walking through a market. Oh, I have some wine. What a nice chap. Oh, that would have killed me. That would have killed me. Uh, there's so many favorite moments, lines, and scenes uh, to go through on a you know uh, line-by-line beat. Um, Tywin and Jamie, going back to that scene there, valuable lessons from Tywin, as brutal as they may be. Uh, but go to the, just, Ramajwadi's got some great ominous music going in this scene. Uh, and the music just underscores that Tywin is a new threat. Now, Tywin's mentioned a lot, uh, especially in the episodes leading up to this. But from the get-go, House Lannister, Tywin's at the lead. He's, he's a threat. He's a presence in the story. But he shows up, and it is a new threat. And the music kind of tells you that. It is, it is ominous. But uh, this is also one of the first, we have sympathy for the devil scenes with Jamie. There's some great stuff early on about his first kill. You're already starting to see the stuff with him and Ned about what is justice and how it felt like justice to Jamie. I think that's starting to make you understand there's another side, but now you're seeing where it's all coming from. You see what's all, with Cersei and Tyrion as well. Uh, you, you see how they're reacting to this, this man. And this is what I'll say about Tywin. When I say he has valuable lessons, and when Andres Cabrera comes on uh, Casually Talk here and we, we defend Tywin from a certain point of view, it's just kind of fun, number one. Uh, and Charles Dance is so good. I think there's somewhat of tiny heart in Tywin. It's tiny. The stuff with season two with him and Arya kind of tugs on my Tywin loving heartstrings a little bit. But this is also the beginning. This is what kills him. Family. Family. He keeps talking about family. We could have a dynasty that goes for a thousand years or be wiped away like the Targaryens. Ends up really essentially, they're wiped away. Tyrion survives, as we said, but Tywin's first scene, he is talking about what is going to kill him. Family. It's because he views the bonds of family as important, the family name important. He just he just does it all wrong because he's a bad dad. And it all starts right here. That's a great moment. Just love all that. Cersei and Ned. I mean, you go from that scene to Cersei and Ned and uh, the, the when you die scene. It's amazing. A theme that uh, does emerge in that, if we want to talk about themes, Ned protecting children and all of this. Elite, Cersei, just take your kids. and I don't want your kids to get hurt. He's protecting his kids. He's protecting Daenerys. Children, who he views as the younger. 
uh, more innocence around. Uh, and that's something that will play out again in Baylor. Um, it's one of my favorite lines. It, it, it says a lot about Baelish. He's just a heel, but you gotta, you'd gotta love heels sometimes. Uh, when he's talking to Roz and Emrek, it says, uh, you know, Roz, they, they teach you that in the North, and you, wherever you're from. I think it's a funny line, but it also shows that he's just kind of a, a bad, bad line. Talking about the ocean line, there wasn't gone old man. They were sleeping, and they ain't sleeping no more. Uh, I love, I want to go back to one of my favorite moments is uh, watching this. The moment uh, a bloody Renly reveals Robert is hurt, because back then, Watching this, you, you're coming off the Benjamin stuff. You're at the wall. Uh, the ho- Benjamin's horse comes back. Jor Mormont's got a look on his face. Uh, Jon Snow's asking about it. And then you cut to Renly running up going, Ned, 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 as if something's going wrong. Me watching this in 2011 is like, oh, they're going to tell him about Benjamin. <laughs> Silly me. Robert's hurt from the hunt. And my reaction then was, that it, and, and I still have it now. That's why Robert is flawed, but I think there's a tragedy to the character of Robert Baratheon. The reveal that Robert's hurt, and then you see that he's he's dead, but or that he's dying, essentially. Renly, with the blood and everything, in that moment, dear God, I remember thinking, as crazy as this seems, Robert is holding all this together. He stays alive, it's all different. That's one of those big what-ifs. We love our what-ifs. Robert stays alive. I don't know if all of the machinations fall into place and get carried out. I'm not saying he's the wisest in the land that would have stopped it, but it is, um, it's different. It's just crazy. Uh, I love, I, so my reaction back then was like, oh no, if Robert goes, that's not good. I love focusing on Cersei uh, bedside with Robert playing the game. She's she kind of arranged this, right? Lancel kept drinking the feeding him, uh, you know, pouring him the wine, so to speak. Can you feed someone wine? It seems like you can. But I love I love the way Lena Headey's playing it here. Uh, uh, she she's nervous, right? Because she this is what she wanted. So she's bedside. She's playing the game. Oh, my sweet Robert. But Ned shows up, and she she is rightful to be wary or afraid of Ned's power and connection to Robert. And so uh, Lena Headey plays that. Um, and there's also this comment here, a lot of uh, Cersei's plans, particularly in the books, involve just a little bit of luck. She's not as thorough of a planner as Tywin, her father, or Tyrion. Uh, they, she needs some bad luck or good luck to happen. She can, you know, Varys in the books kind of indicates that maybe there were some henchmen in the forest on, on Cersei's payroll making sure that something bad happened with the boar. Uh, the show doesn't really play up on that, but it does play the map. You know, Varys is very clear, like, well, wait a minute. He was, he was, who was feeding Robert the wine? Who was, oh, there it is, feeding again. Uh, who was, uh, who was giving him all that wine? Who was providing him the wine? Oh, Lancel Lannister. Hmm. Ned kind of sees it, right? Um, but Cersei, you know, has to really, you know, did she know a boar was going to come around? I don't know. So that to me is a comment on she's, not as good as Tywin or Tyr when it comes to planning things or maybe playing the game. And in season two, especially early season two, she's dealing with a lot of that, where Tyrion is sent back to fix a lot of her mistakes. I don't think that's a comment as, as on Cersei as being a, a less intelligent character. Uh, I think she's got to make her plays, and she's very smart, and she gets her revenge in many cases. Uh, but it's a mad scramble for this kingdom. It's a mad scramble for... Uh, her to get the approval of her father, whether she really feels she wants it or not, it's probably buried in there. Um, it's because I love Cersei as a character. But book four, Feast for Crows. I, I, Feast for Crows 
a lot of Cersei in there, and a lot of it to me is trying to live up to the legacy of her father, trying to be better than her father, and she makes some mistakes, and, and as as all of us do, and and I think it, a lot of it starts here. It, it's interesting interesting to watch her play that uh, Lena Headey Lena Headey bedside because it's like yeah yeah Robert's Robert's gonna go crap Ned's here what's gonna happen I didn't think this through or maybe I can't control everything and I know that it's good stuff. Uh, Robert's deathbed, uh, he has that change of heart on uh, Daenerys, laments uh, that a uh, lot of things in his life. And I think some of that uh, is fuel for Ned thinking um, it's best for him to hold the line. Yeah, I was right about Daenerys. See, even Robert kind of stay that line. Be honorable. Be just. Uh, Ned, I love the line, no man could have protected him from himself. Talking about Robert. Uh a lot of stuff about John to the Stewarts, learning how to serve and follow in order to lead. That comes a uh, real full focus in season two with your Mormont uh, up at the Craster's Keep. There, um, I love the line. I you know I love the line. Uh, Ned saying, "What you suggest is treason to Baelish," and Baelish saying, "Only if we lose." One of those truths. Um, wrapping up here, um, Sir Barristan, sell me, man. Talk about just favorite moments when he gives the letter, reads the letter aloud. Cersei rips it up. I love his, those are the king's words. And Cersei's like, we have a new king. You cut back to Barristan, and uh, Ian McElhinney just plays it so well. He just says that look. He just, his eyes just kind of pop, and he's like, oh, no. Oh, this ain't good. All right, deep sigh. Turn around. What do we got to do? Uh, I love that. It's just one of those little moments that make this show so good. And the final line, I did warn you not to trust me. What a great ending there. Episode stars, I got to tell you, Aiden Gillen just kills it again. But I got to get Jason Momoa. He goes through a lot of season one, His basically his only season outside of a quick appearance in uh, season two, right? Uh, he, he doesn't have a lot of dialogue. What he has is in Dothraki uh, out of, uh, what, out of, outside of no... Uh, yes, or uh, you are no king, right? He barely speaks uh, the common tongue. Momoa, I think this made him a star. And so from that aspect, I think he did get credit for what he did here. But man, you're behind him, man. And, he, and he's brutal. He's a brutal guy. And there's a lot that we can get to Miriam Mir- duel and, and some of the truths and some of those complicated questions about uh, about um, Cal Drogo. But Momoa in this scene, when he comes back and he's pissed off because he plays it earlier so well, just kind of quiet. His, his wife is braiding his hair and he's like, oh, why do you want this iron chair? And da, da, da. When he's convinced, I mean, talk about Game of Thrones, what ifs. The look in his eyes, what Momoa's given us here, it's like, if they get across the narrow sea, it's over. There's no way he loses. What would he do against the the White Walkers and the Whites and the Night King? Would he would he face uh, would he face the destruction uh, like like the the Dothraki end up facing? Then I don't know. I think Jason Momoa would have uh, you know done everything. Cal uh, Drogo, Jason Momoa as Cal Drogo would have done everything he could to just go to the Night King and rip his head off. I don't know. I, I my point is I'm giving him uh, the, this uh, nod here because in this moment I believe everything about Drogo. I'm there cheering too. Uh, sweet moment with Jorah. My guy Jorah gets a horse. Yay. And Jorah's really in now. I've, I've definitely chosen a side. Um, Mayor Clark just is so moved, moved to tears. And I like it because it's, it's, it's Cal Drogo is, he's the Cal. He's, he's the leader. He's this, but I love in this moment. He was one of the only ones. This is why their connection works. Despite some complicated decisions that Cal Drogo makes. 
going back to what I was talking about, about the theme of, of how this world and our world, but how this world views women and women in power or women and their desires for power. And they're, uh, you know, I don't mean that in, a, in an evil way, but just life, man, trying to live it. Cal Droco is the one that is fully on board saying, oh, you want the Iron Throne? You want to be queen? I will absolutely give it to you. I will absolutely give it to you. Uh, and I think that is uh, a credit to Cal Drogo and to their connection. So uh, next up uh, is the pointy end episode eight. Oh boy. A lot of stuff starts to happen here. We have, uh, we're getting to the end of season one and this is where our hearts are about to be broken, but this is our look here. Casually talk on episode seven. You win or you die. I could go and go and go, but I'm going to spare you all here. Uh, what do you think about these themes? What do you have in it? Uh, let me know, reach out, follow me at catnapsuck. Use hashtag casterly talk. You can like us on Facebook if you'd like. And, uh, if you have a call, get it, get on the Anchor app and, and call about episode 8, episode 9, episode 10. We are uh, going on here in our Game of Thrones rewatch. I'll see you next time here on Casterly Talk. Mm-hmm.